Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today, I'm welcoming Andrew Root to the show. Andrew is the Kerry Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He writes and researches in areas of theology, ministry, culture, and younger generations. His recent books are Churches in the Crisis of Decline, When Church Stops Working, and What We Will Be Talking About Today, The Church After Innovation. Andy has worked in congregations, parachurch ministries, and social service programs. He lives in St. Paul with his wife, Kara, two children, and their dog. When not reading, writing, or teaching, Andy spends far too much time watching TV and movies. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am Lauren Richmond Jr., and I am uh, glad to be welcoming Dr. Andrew Root today. So, uh, Andy, thanks so much for being here. Looking forward to having you back on the pod and looking forward to having this conversation. Um, I had you back on, or I had you on a few months ago, but just give a quick kind of who you are, what you're about, uh, anything that's happening right now in your life. Yeah, so uh, I'm here in the Twin Cities. So I, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, really close to the uh, city line of Minneapolis. So like legit Twin Cities is uh, mm-hmm. is, is where I'm at. And uh, I teach at Luther Seminary here uh, in, in St. Paul. Our campus overlooks the Minneapolis skyline, but our address is in St. Paul. And uh, yeah, I teach classes on uh, theology and ministry and uh, youth ministry often too. Um and yeah, I've been uh, kind of working at the intersection of uh, of our uh, our cultural moment and uh, ministry and the life of the church right now. And um, yeah, that's me. Awesome. So, like I said, uh, if you're really interested in kind of um, Andy's his faith journey and what that looked like, go back and check out a previous episode I had. I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. But um, Andy, one of the things I appreciate from reading your book so much is you really seem to get a real good grasp, at least from my perspective, of kind of the the cultural moments that we're in through uh, entertainment. So I'm kind of curious, like, like what are you watching right now as we're recording this in November? What are you yeah, watching? Well, well, you're very kind to say that. I feel like I don't know anything. I, I have teenage kids right now, and there's like some meme or some TikTok video, and I'm like, I, I, I don't even know what mm-hmm. that is. I'm like a good... Gen X uh, uh, TV watcher, major committed TV watcher. Sure, sure. TV raised me, so I feel like I just owe it, you know, four hours a night. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm watching right now, we just finished, last night was big in our TV watching lives and big as it relates to Apple TV Plus too, because we finished season three of the morning show last night. Okay. When we're recording this, this is on a Wednesday, so the the finale dropped uh, Tuesday night. We finished that, and we also finished uh, season two of The Foundation, um, which uh, a good sci-fi show, which we we liked a great deal. So that's uh, yeah, that's where we that's where we're at. Yeah, uh, you know, I've only watched a handful of the the morning show. I don't I don't do 
I'm more of a sports guy and I can just like nerd out watching YouTube videos forever. So I don't yeah. like, I just kind of have like my comfort food as far as like TV watching. It's like Seinfeld, 30 rock, um, the good place, the office kind of like just cycle through those. And I feel and if I really want to get like emotionally invested, I'll watch like Friday night lights, the show, yeah. um, <laughs> just to have a good feel. Uh, so what do you think? Like, I'm just curious again, what I've been listening to this podcast on, um, on horror Christianity today has a, has a podcast oh, yeah. on horror. Yeah. And I'm not a horror right. fan at all, but I think what's interesting is the, uh, their approach is kind of like that horror kind of really captures in some ways, kind of the cultural angst, cultural mm-hmm. anxiety. What do you think right now? Or what have you seen l- lately that you think might be kind of speaking to the cultural stuff going on right now? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't listened to that podcast, so I, I can't really. And I'm not a horror guy either. Like, I, my my daughter, who's 16, is is really into horror. She loves it, and and my wife and I have no idea what to make of that. Like, because we, we have no interest whatsoever um, in in any of it. So no no judgments here. But yeah, I I yeah, I don't know what they're making of it. Um, yeah, I think I, in this moment. Well, I'll just, you know, connect to the, to, here's, here's the big thing I would say that I think that my, my mind is kind of racing around is how much these shows and just finishing the morning show last night, how much these shows now are getting these kind of voyeuristic looks into the ultra rich, you know, so mm-hmm. you have succession and, and a big piece in season three of the morning show too is, uh, you know, that will, will this, uh, legacy media company be bought up by this tech billionaire that's played mm-hmm. by John and M. And so you're getting a picture into these really, f- you know, filthy rich. Uh, celebrity uh, news people, um, but you're also then getting the really filthy rich of the people who own these own these businesses. And it, it is it's I, I kind of thought about this last night. Like I think probably before like Dallas in the 1980s, and I could be wrong about this, but it it was just it, it was somewhat unbecoming to show just utterly filthy rich people on TV. You know, like mm. TV was supposed to be a medium that had some kind of democratic sensibility about it. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to see kind of, I mean, there's all sorts of prejudice in, inherent within it probably, right. but you're, you're supposed to see, a, a, well, not probably, there was, but you were supposed to see a kind of average American family, the people who could kind of reach this kind of American dream you know had a car and had a suburban house and again there were racial dynamics here that were were utterly um yeah utterly you know chauvinistic and 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 uh uh you know just just tone deaf in many ways but um but there was a kind of sense where what you showed on TV was a reachable kind of standard of living for people. And yet now we have this real interest in the the really filthy rich. I think it goes back to, you know, the Kardashians and some mm-hmm. of those reality mm-hmm. TV shows too. But I bet that's that's kind of interesting to me of how we negotiate that. And I think we're at a place where kind of culturally we do really feel like or we're seeing the ramifications of huge forms of economic uh disparity you know like the the the, the gap economically is so huge but in a fascinating way we become really intrigued with you know 
the, the succession story of these you know utter billionaires trying to work this out or uh there's like almost no shame in the kind of utterly uh yeah the disparity in in, in wealth i i find that to be really an interesting moment of how we're making sense of that because i do think we feel discontent around it mm-hmm. um but we also feel longing for it i guess another example is just and i'm a major watcher of shark tank like how yeah Shark Tank is just big TV watching. In some ways, it's kind of a glorification of a certain kind of capitalism, right, you know? Right. And I kind of like, I mean, I like it. I, I find it always entertaining, but it is interesting to see, yeah, billionaires making assertions about, you know, um, products and ways to make more money, you know, and like just just saying flat out, like, I'm not going to invest in this because I, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear Mr. Wonderful, Wonderful say this. I have to make 10X on this. Like, if I give you 500K, I got to be able to, there's got to be a route for me to 10X this if we're going to go forward. I get it. I mean, that's why you invest money, but it's a, it's an interesting cultural moment of mm-hmm. of how this works. I, I can't remember if you talked about this in any of your, your own podcasts and I have to ask you, since we're talking about a little TV critical moment here, um, gosh, what's his, uh, uh, the football show, the, uh, gosh, I'm literally, Jason Sudeikis' show. What is it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Ted Lasso. Yeah. Ted Lasso, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, my I, brain stopped I, functioning there for a moment. So did like, so mine for a second, yeah. I thought season two and really three, three was just terrible. Um mm. What do you think of like I thought it just went downhill like they're doing too much with the show um like did were you into Ted Lasso at all? Yeah, I mean I think everyone was into Ted Lasso season 1, you know what I mean? Like right. it's just it in part of it was it was coming out of the the pandemic right. and there was just so much negativity around everything that mm-hmm. I mean this is my take and I do talk about this a bit on I think on one of my episodes of my podcast which is just that it was he was just utterly positive, you know, and that was we needed that. We all kind of needed a coach who was you know, going to just push us towards the positive side. Um, but yeah, it did kind of change season two and season three. I thought there were some redeeming episodes in season two, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, see, uh, yeah, I mean, I became, I, I, I started to feel like the the positivity was a little bit too full blown, um, and that it did kind of. I mean, there was a negative story element, and I know we often think of negative as like bad, mm-hmm. but there is something really, I think, positive. <laughs> this is now we're really blurring terms, yeah. Here, but there's something uh, maybe productive or something that uh, can push us into a certain kind of vision by attending to the negative. You know, there has been a whole Christian tradition that that is tended to want to look at the negative elements as a way of finding truth, as a way of even finding God. Mm-hmm. And that over positivity can make us addicted to kind of smoothness. And this is, there's a, there's a Korean German philosopher named Baung Chul Han who talks about how obsessed we late moderns are with smoothness. We want mm-hmm. everything to be smooth. Um, that we, that we feel like any kind of snags of negativity could like, destroy us in some ways and and we and we we find this in institutions discourses about like negativity could uh 
could be utterly damaging to, to human beings. And, and part of his point is like, what is that? Because there's always been a sense in all religious traditions and across cultures that there is a sense that the human spirit has to deal with negativity to find a, a, a sense of fullness, to find it, to reach for something greater, um, that uh, a society that wants nothing but smooth positivity is a society that has no depth. And I, I think that's interesting. And so that would be my critique of Ted Lasso. It's got almost too positive that it lost some of the depth to it um and uh we yeah and that that's probably that's that'll good. probably get that's us good. that'll probably get us angry emails too because yeah. you know that's uh, good i'm preaching on flipping the four here in a couple of weeks i might have to i'm gonna have to go back and listen to what you just said here and use that in my quote that in my sermon um yeah see i didn't like three more for the storytelling i thought was just chunky and all over the place um, yeah. okay last question here and i'll promise i'll get yeah. to your book um, are you only murderers in the building? Like we are. Because I've been, we're through, I'm yeah, lost. Season three, I'm just bored to death. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know because we are only one episode into season three. Okay. And so we, we put it aside, waiting. Where we like when we can kind of get a bunch of episodes yeah. in the hopper. Yeah. You know, when, when it's when it's a when it's not Netflix and it's coming out every week, we kind of like to wait until we have four or five so we can kind of go night after night after night. So we we push, we watched the first episode of Murders and then we we waited and then we got into these other two shows hmm. and we're going to go back. But now you're if you're saying it's utterly boring, well, um I mean you know, I just feel like I feel like, you know, they got some a, you know, Meryl Streep, for God's sake. I mean, and I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is a me problem. So maybe it's just a me problem. But I feel like, uh, I don't know. There's, I, again, I feel like there's just too much going on. Anyway, let's yeah. um, let's move on. Um, <laughs> now that we've made everyone mad at us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Meryl Streep's incredible. So I don't want to diminish her acting. I just don't know what the, what the show is doing with her yeah. and, and the whole season. But anyway, um Appreciate appreciate the little entertainment there for a minute. Um, let's talk about your book. Um, it's actually on my reach here, so you'll have to give the title, the full title, Churches in the Crisis Decline. What's the rest of the subtitle there? I, I can't even remember. I think it's something like a hopeful ecclesiology, maybe something like that. I usually, my books have longer subtitles in that so maybe there's something else in it i don't i don't have it around here i don't think either so it's something like that a, a hopeful ecclesiology maybe for yeah a second uh, maybe regardless not. um so one of the things that i really appreciated the book and i think um you explained this also in your first book and i think you also talked about it in um congregation and secular age but you kind of talk about the three stages of seculars and i thought that was really important so i wanted you to kind of break those down real quick for our listeners yeah, I think that's a, is a really important piece, and, and probably the whole of the the six volumes kind of hangs on this. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, this is not uh, my work. This is Charles Taylor's work, the the Quebecois uh, philosopher uh, who talks. He's, he's really trying to just describe what it means to live in a secular age. What do we really mean when we say that word? Because it's such a slippery word, you know, like to even get a to get a handle on it. Um, and so he he does this thing where he says like secular one, secular two, secular three, and he thinks. At its at its core, that the secular comes into our society, and what this is what he calls secular one. It's when belief becomes filed away as a private reality. Mm-hmm. So when we start to separate belief, and his point is before 
the kind of modern age before, I guess, you know, like before the 18th century is a good way to probably start to think about it, that you, you just, you, you would never assume that belief was a private thing. And if someone who was in charge of you, say a king or a duke or someone didn't believe, well, the, the assumption was, or they were disobedient to the belief system. There was the assumption it could bring peril to the whole Mm -hmm. realm. Like this could be a, you know, if, if the king is disobedient, we're all, well, we're all screwed to be, to be uh, blunt, but this changes in our imagination and belief becomes a private thing. And now we, I think we all believe this at a certain level. Like it doesn't really matter what the mayor believes, you know, what matters is that the garbage gets picked up. (laughs) What matters is that the water is clean. You know, it doesn't matter what they personally believe, what, you know, even what house of worship they might go to. That doesn't matter. So, but you can see how that kind of functions uh, just really practically within us is that we think that belief becomes kind of internally constituted in some way. um, And then has to be expressed outwardly, publicly, and the church becomes an outward location to express an inner belief. And the pastor has to somehow mold people's inner beliefs and then create this space for them to make expressions of that publicly, you know, whether that's in their volunteering or in their stewardship or whatever that might be. So that's with us. And we're all secular people because we believe that at one level. Um, we, you know, we believe that belief is a private thing for the most part, you know, it's, it's hard for us to think outside of that. And we tend to believe that even our um, political and our, our social structures don't need people to believe certain doctrines to be able to have those larger cultural realities function well. You know, the the, the person who's overseeing, um, you know, the dog pound or the the humane society doesn't need to be a believing person. You know what I mean? There, mm-hmm. whatever institution that might be. But then he says this, this secu- that's secular one, and we're all that. But then he says secular two is that uh, he defines it as fewer and fewer people coming to church. I guess that's the way I define it. But it's mm-hmm. the, the classic secularization theory that the religious institutions are weaker that um that people are just not coming and, and therefore these institutions are are under crisis that way and that is kind of classically how we define secular that that people just don't want to come to church anymore people right. aren't participating in religion and he thinks that that's not a really helpful way of defining it if you live on the continent of europe it's just it's obvious, you know, and if you live in America, it's less obvious, but it's starting to become yeah. more obvious, yeah, you know, that it'll obvious. drop under under 50%. And if you're a pastor of a church or, you know, a bishop of a denomination or something, you know this as, as affecting right. us, you know, like it, it's affecting budgets. But he doesn't think that's what it really means to live in a secular age. And what it ultimately means to live in a secular age, he thinks is secular three, which is that all belief itself becomes contested, that all belief becomes fragilized. And we live with this deep kind of sense of fragilization. And he ultimately means that kind of transcendence as an overarching meaning system becomes harder for people to imagine. And that people can even say things in our society like, I'm taking a break from God for a, for a while. And we can think that's logical or even possible. Right. Where other societies even now, but particularly in the past, could not even assume that that was a logical statement that you could take a break from God. We think pastors could say things like, I'm taking a break from God for a while. We think, well, that, you know, that's logical. You keep doing the job, but you're really kind of yeah. not thinking about God. You're you're not worried about your devotional life. Um, that, that's a different kind of society that we're in. So there's this incredible impulse to make meaning, but that meaning doesn't have to have any divine or transcendent referent to it. That the, the world we mainly inherit is an imminent one, that uh, where we have to be kind of loyal and committed to more natural 
material things than than maybe spiritual things or transcendent things. Um, and that then creates, oddly, this kind of secular age creates just surpluses of spiritualities, like all sorts of spiritualities. So people don't need organized forms mm-hmm. of religion. They don't need to go to church necessarily, but they knew, do need to find, to deal with all the, the, the fragilization of belief, they need to find spiritualities to, to deal with the push to have to construct their own forms of meaning and purpose. They have to find and be spiritual beings. So that could become exercise or yeah. that could become uh, nature or that could become just really being an overly invested parent. Like all those things could become in some ways a, a, a sense of, of ultimacy to you or a, a kind of form of belief that shapes your life and it becomes a kind of spiritual disposition. So that's that's what he really means about those three those three seculars. And in in different ways, all six books kind of pick up on this kind of secular three reality. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about the book is that you really dive into Carl. Now, you can say it if you want to be uh, – Should I, can I say just Carl Barth? Can I say that and not pronunciate it correctly? Uh, yeah, the German you Bart. can. Yeah, you just, the, the, the TH is hard, I guess, for German speakers. And so you just drop that H and just, it's, yeah, it's just good old Bart. So, uh, but, yeah. So, I, you know, obviously going to seminary, it studied uh, Bart, Barth, whatever. Um, and I, I feel like I like understood his dialectic kind of his, his teaching, but never really got it to the extent that you lay it out. Um, and as I read it, at least as I understood your your words here, you really boiled down to this idea that God is God. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sounds a little counterintuitive or cra- kooky, but talk more about what you mean by that and how you draw that yeah. out from him. Yeah, it's, it, it actually I think is is really interesting and really important and and very historical in, in in the in the way that he's developing it and it fits within this. I mean, part of what I'm trying to do in this book is you know Charles Taylor who writes this this big book and. In, in, in 07, you know, in, in, in 2007. Hmm. And Karl Barth is writing his most, impo- I guess, his work that, that kind of shakes European theology and really shapes shapes theology across the world. He writes that in 1919, so right as World War One is ending. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a little time jump here where, where Taylor gives us this framework, and I think what I what I'm trying to say about Bart is that he actually is already seeing the situation that Taylor will take a hundred years to describe, but he's trying to rethink theology now inside of of this imminent frame, in inside of a world where we're not sure that we can even talk about a living God, if that makes sense at all. So Bart really is uh, he he's raised in a conservative Protestant family, in a Swiss conservative Protestant family, but becomes enamored with kind of German liberal theology. And the big piece of German liberal theology is essentially to admi- is to concede to the imminent frame. Again, he right. wouldn't have this language, right. but he is to do that, which is to say, I mean, at, at its most base, and people who understand this will maybe roll their eyes as this is too basic, but there there is this deal of of kind of dealing with the fact that the big driving philosophical moment is how you know anything. Like, mm-hmm. how do you know? Like, this is what happens with the Enlightenment. How do you actually know you know what you know? Like, how do we know any of those people listening right now? How do you really know you're listening to this? What if you're <laughs> dreaming? What if this, you know, what? Uh, how do you know that you're actually, maybe you're having some kind of uh, psychotic break and you're imagining this. How do you really know anything? Mm-hmm. And of course, this is all goes kind of back to the Enlightenment and the fact that Galileo realizes that the the earth 
revolves around the sun, even though your observations from the earth looks quite counter to that. Like, you know, when you're, when you're standing outside all day and, you know, mowing the lawn and, and doing yard work, it feels like the sun is moving. Like the sun is setting. It was what we even say. The sun is moving away from us. Or you're in Hawaii on the beach and you watch the sun drop into the ocean. Your observations are that the sun is moving, not the earth is moving, but you're wrong. And mathematical realities can show us this. Well, that just changes the West. Like, how do you know you know what you know? Um, And that becomes the big question. And Immanuel Kant creates this reality that, well, what you know is you can know things through sense experience. You know, like um, there's scientific ways that you can even kind of, if you can check them, you can know them through sense experiences. Well, to just be really, really basic, this becomes a whole problem for God because God can't be known in sense experience. Mm. And if the university is about knowledge that can be deciphered in a kind of scientific, rational way through sense experience, well, how, how do you study God? You can, there's, there's no way that you could do this. So in some sense, like in the 19th century into the early 20th century, contemplations and thoughts about God as a scientific exercise or even as a deep academic exercise were over. So the only things you could talk about to keep theology in the faculty, you could talk about God necessarily, but you could talk about religion as an anthropological reality. You could talk about the history of the church. You could talk about ways of interpreting sacred texts or even how sacred texts come to us, but you can't really talk about God as an object of study. Well, Barth's whole thing is to realize that such a perspective is actually quite cancerous. And what happens in 1914 as Germany goes to war is all his theology professors sign off on the Kaiser's decree. And that what had happened inside of this kind of theology that has lost the sense that God speaks, that the strange world of the Bible, that the God of the strange world of the Bible still acts even within our world, even in a modern world. Bart doesn't want to not be modern. Even in the modern world, God can can speak. Well, it's led to a certain kind of sense that God is a mascot for German imperialism. Yeah. And Bart sees this as a major problem. And when he rereads Romans, he realizes that there's this deep assertion where God is asserting that, well, to echo Kierkegaard, that uh, there's a qualitative distinction between time and eternity. God is God and you are not. Like that God judges, that God is wholly other. So his whole theological project is to remind us that God is God, that God is not our cultural mascot, that God is not one who um, we use for our ends, that God is not dependent on us, that God can still act in the world. So he ends up writing, you know, 13 volumes and uh, of a dogmatics and countless other articles and pieces trying to make this assertion really, I think, from the place of the pastor, ultimately, or at least this is where it starts, on how do we help people imagine again? How do we proclaim again for people that this is a living God who moves in the world, that this is a living God who speaks and acts within the world? Um, and that becomes the, the kind of central current of, 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 his, of his commitments. Yeah. And I, th- I think you use this... Um... This is what you're driving towards in the book. And, and I don't just want to say, like, as myself, a mainline Protestant pastor, or someone who cares deeply about the church, and I think I, I said this to you before we started recording, this is why, in my opinion, this book is the most important book of the series. And, and in fairness, mm-hmm. I haven't read The Church in a Secular Age yet. Um, because I think, like, as you say in the book, like, this is the real crisis. And I, I, this is, I, is, I almost want I, I almost want to pause right here and ask you like 
like, hopefully I'm not being too forthcoming here, but like yeah. on a Sunday morning in my current context, like I feel that crisis, like I feel it. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't quite put name or words to it until I read your book. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is, this is the crisis. And mm-hmm. like our church has like a, a balcony and I'll find myself when I'm walking in the balcony. Cause where my office is where like standing above the pews pre church and start praying for the service and, and that God would show up. But like, I, I don't, I don't even know what question to ask other than just to say like, this is what I'm, yeah, I sense, and I'm curious, like, what kind of, what have you sensed? What have you feedback have you gotten from other pastors? Speak yeah. to that if you can. Yeah, well, I think you. I mean, the, the title. I, I said so many other days. I love this book, but I hate the title. Um, and they're like, because the, this is, you know, the, the church is in the crisis of decline. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not even really talking about that. It's like, yeah, well, that's the point. Right. It's, 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 you know, for good or for ill, it's a clickbait title right. um which is to say there is a crisis i think if you're pro- a protestant uh maybe catholics and our orthodox folks get to kind of avoid this in some way but if you're a protestant crisis is at the center of everything you know like we are we are the people of crisis but i think in in late modernity in and in this moment we tend to think to go back to our three seculars that the crisis is a secular two crisis mm-hmm. the crisis is fewer and fewer people right. are coming to church right then for you to be a good pastor you have to become an entrepreneur and you have to find ways of winning people's participation. So your preaching should get them to come back. You you should build, build programming that's, uh, that's really sticky and gets a bunch of people to come. That the issue is the crisis of decline. And this is a very American thing. I mean, yeah. we have this deep kind of sense like you could take a church of 10 people. I mean, you could take 10 people, 10 friends, and in eight months, you could have a church of 3,000 people, 8,000 people. You know, we have all sorts of stories like that right. that are very rare, but they get a lot of, they get a lot of air. They get, they get a, they get a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. Um, but that seems to be the, the kind of driving issue. And my point is there is a crisis, but it is to kind of follow Karl Barth again that the crisis is God is God. The crisis is you have to get up in the pulpit and speak of this God which is nearly impossible to speak of. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you need to do this act of then on top of that, pointing these people who are, who are, that have their whole imaginations framed by imminence. They exist inside of an imminent Mm -hmm. frame. And then you have to be able to speak to them in a way that they can have eyes to see or have a imagination for the fact that God is still speaking and moving in their lives. Like I do think being a Protestant pastor, you should have some nights. I mean, I, I hope you don't have a lot of these nights, but you should have some nights where you can't sleep or you kind of are staring at the ceiling, dealing with kind of like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I think any good pastor has those. I fear too many of those nights for most contemporary pastors is how do I get more people to come? Yeah. Man, I must be an awful pastor because we're not growing or we're only growing at one or 2% or something like that. I I would hope that what would keep us up at night is how am I going to preach this word to these people? Yeah. How am I going to get these people to understand that God is acting and moving? This is a huge challenge. I mean, I it, part of the book is to actually say, you know, the challenge you feel, the uneasy you feel is right. It's absolutely right that you are, that it is a incredible crisis to try to speak again of a living speaking God in this cultural context. But so often that discontent, that anxiety, even, um, that, that, that struggle gets reinterpreted as 
you you're not good enough at winning market share. Right. You got to find a way to win market share. And I think that's the red herring in all of Protestant ministry is to think the best pastor will be the pastor that can win market share, not the pastor that can speak of God again yeah. as God and and how people lean into that in fear and trembling. Yeah, that's what I loved about your congregation in a secular age was you talk through like the burnout, how just that constant um, treadmill of producing and engineering leads to burnout. So as I thought about like your works and I, I imagine you kind of hate this on some level, like, you know, a church with like a three word slogan <laughs> kind of goes against <laughs> all you're about, but also like, I, I imagine like, what would Andy Rood's church slogan be? Uh, so tell me how this sounds to you. Worship, pray, and wait. Yeah. Like that's the Andy Root Church slogan. You know, like churches have yeah. like Root Church. Yeah. Worship, pray, wait. <laughs> I mean, how's that sound yeah, yeah. to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eat, pray, love. Yeah, um, yeah. No, th- that there, there's something that's really true about that, and and the weight thing becomes really important. And one of the things I try to get at in the middle of this this orange book, um, churches in the crisis of decline, is that. We, as human beings, we have to be actors. We have to act in some way. We always have to act. But if the issue, again, is a secular two issue of loss of market share, mm-hmm. then your kind of actions are going to be frantic actions. Yeah. And uh, those actions are going to demand that you become busier and busier. And that, that's your point, that it will eventually burn us out. But you can see how this becomes an imminent way of looking at action itself. And this is partly, you know, the, the problem of the Reformation is that the Reformation for really deep theological commitments equalizes all action. You know what I mean? Like Luther himself says, like, it doesn't, it, the, the action of changing a baby's diapers and leading a mass, they're the same. Mm-hmm. They're the same before God. You have to do them faithful with your heart turned towards God. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do. It's how you do it. You know, um, that, that's very different. But what, what occurs as we enter more and more into the imminent frame and deeper into the imminent frame is that we're happy. The modern project's happy to take that definition, but then take God out of it. And now what makes for good action is the action that expends the most energy. Yeah. So whatever action expends the most energy is really valuable. This this actually takes us back to our Shark Tank conversation mm-hmm. because in, in some sense, kind of dealing with economic inequality, we feel like, well, I mean, this becomes moral for us. Right. We're like, well, we can't, we can't really be mad at Mark Cuban um, because he works so hard and he he expends a lot of energy to have those millions of dollars. And the, the reason he has millions, my gosh, billions yeah. of dollars, the reason he has billions of dollars and you don't is because he has found ways to expend his energy smarter and maybe even just more intensely than you. Um, and, and, and that's the issue. So that, that expending of energy means that busyness becomes the most important form of action. Like the busier you are, the better you are. And we, I think pastors feel this all the, all the time, but one of the ways to move forward then is to have a different form of action. And the form of action that I'm really trying to push towards that includes worship and prayer is to really become people that learn how to wait and wait on God. Um, and we, for, you know, we forget this, like, in, in what is it, Psalm 46, right, where we have that the really powerful statement where God says, be still and know I am God. Yeah. 
if you so Hebrew scholars at least tell me that the folks that I know say that a, a good way to translate that text if in the kind of most directly in its Hebrew and its Hebrew articulation is put down your hands and know I am God hmm. wow. which is fascinating put down your hands and know I am God in other words stop fighting me and put down your hands and know I am God and stop doing all this stuff stop getting so busy busy hands do not busy hands are not what I respond to and in some sense like I think in in the as right before the for the period of the exile where we get into the Elijah and Elisha and uh um uh, in that period of Israel's history, that when you feel like the issue is declined, your hands get very busy. Yeah. And when your hands get yeah. very busy, you get pushed towards wanting, you get pushed towards idolatry. Let's just be frank. You get really pushed towards idolatry and you get pushed towards fertility gods. So you start looking after the bales, that the bales will let you out of your, your decline. And Yahweh uh, is a God of the desert that wants to be your parent, that wants to hold you, that, want, that wants to be in discourse and conversation with you, not just to give you better crop yield, not just to give you better market share. Mm-hmm. And so there is really something profound, and it's a huge challenge leadership-wise, of how you help a congregation stop, put down their hands, and know that God is God. And maybe the only way they can know that God is God is by putting down their hands. Um, and that, and, and Bart's trying to get at that too, this sense that to wait for the God who is God or the call to know a God who is God is to wait and to listen and become attentive. And it is to become attentive in anticipation. You know, it's not, we hate waiting as modern people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we were just talking about streaming services at the beginning. One of the right. beauties of our time is all the wanting all the waiting is taken out of wanting, yep. you know, like when you even go onto your street, your streaming service and it's like, yeah, next episode's Wednesday or, you know, go to the theater and watch this movie. You're like, no, I, I want this right now. I don't want to have to wait for this or the only kind of waiting that's allowed in this kind of late capitalist age is like good, good. Uh, I say good Friday, black Friday. Yeah. Waiting, yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, like you're kind of waiting in anticipation so you can get super busy to the point of violently, frantically busy so you can get a $50 TV. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the only kind of waiting that's allowed, but a kind of waiting that unhooks from an idolatry of busyness and fertility um, in the kind of, in the sense of the bales, um, that be, that becomes very countercultural, but very necessary. Um, so the waiting really is waiting in anticipation, waiting in resistance, waiting with a deep story. And that all takes leadership. It all takes pastoral leadership to lead us into. But it is saying to your congregation, we usually say like, who can do more? Mm-hmm. Who can give more? Right. Who can go faster? Who can go busier for God and for this church? Instead of saying maybe in this moment, what we need to do is put down our hands and know that God is God. I mean, I don't can't remember if it's in this book or maybe your Congregation of Secular Age book. You talk about how, at least as I read it, like this kind of leads to a functional atheism. Am I misinterpreting that? No, absolutely a functional atheism. Yeah, because I think like I, I can't remember if you explicitly talk about this in your books, but I was thinking about it in church context, like whether it's an evangelical context where it's just like about light shows and incredible production, the idea that like um, like God and the gospel is not enough to draw people to church, like we have to draw them to church. 
or like in a mainline progressive liberal church context, it's like, we can't trust the gospel enough to change the city. Like we are in charge of changing our city and righting all the wrongs. So that kind of leads to a question I, I want to ask you, like where does action fit in? I know you talk about yeah. Carl, Carl Bart, um, in his context, what that looks like for him. Like, what do you think that looks like for, for people today? Yeah, I mean, I, so there is a deep sense, I think. I mean, one way to get into this is uh, building on what you just said is part of the real challenge or how this functional atheism starts to really take shape is when we wrongly, I think, again, because we feel those pinches of secular too, mm-hmm. fewer and fewer people participating. I mean, consultants will say this to church leaders all the time. you got to find your story. Right. You have to figure out what the church's story is, and then you gotta you got to sell that story, essentially. You got to know your story and that will form your action. So if you know your story, then you'll be able to form your action. But theologically, the church has no story. The church has absolutely no story of its own. The only story the church has is the story of God. And the church doesn't even get to be like best supporting actor. I mean, talk about uh, Meryl Streep, you know, like we, uh, we don't, you, you don't even get to be nominated for an Oscar here. Um, the church, the church does serve an incredible role in this, in this narrative that's unfolding. It gets to narrate this story. It gets to kind of be narrator be, uh, in, in pointing to the main actor is God and God is acting for the world. And so we'll always be called into the world um, to point to how God is acting within it. But the functional atheism happens when the church's story eclipses God's story, mm. then what the, what we're selling is actually the church. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're trying to draw people to and get them to be loyal to or committed to, or my gosh, we could even say disciples of, mm-hmm. is the church. And, that's, that, and what will then happen functionally is much like a company. I mean, this is Shark Tank right. again. My gosh, this is all this is all coming around. Like on Shark Tank, you'll hear people say, "Well, you have a good product, right. but you don't have a, you don't have a company." And then they'll say, "Well, what's the story? Where did you come from?" Right. They always want to know the right. story behind this. And the 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 reality is is that if all of a sudden your story as a church is more important than God's story, then all God can become is your product. And now your God's your product that you're selling. This is a it's it's almost worse than a functional atheism. It's a, a kind of stripping God of being God. God is just a product, and a product has no story. Um, the closest thing you can get in a product to its story is the user's guide. Hmm. Um, and if if you're reading the user guide for fun, sounds like evangel- um, evangelicalism right there. <laughs> well, that that becomes part of the issue, right? right? Is that in these big churches, God becomes the product we're selling through the light show of our church yeah. or whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever those things are. And then um, our theology becomes incredibly propositional. It becomes very much um, we read the Bible as a user's guide and you lose this deep sense of a God who can interrupt, a God who can judge, a God who comes into death and brings life out of it, um, a God who, who speaks and moves, um, a God who demands you you put down your hands and wait for this God, you know, that wait for this God to arrive. And so, uh, yeah, the functional atheism plays there. We will be called to do things, uh, but we'll be called out of that story. And what we'll be called into is a certain form of waiting action that uh, is dynamically transformational, which is to minister to the world. Like one of the reasons we have to wait is so we can really see our neighbor, so we can really see their burdens that they're carrying. Um, if what God is doing is ministering new life to the world, bringing life out of death, freeing Israel from Egypt, raising Jesus from the 
dead, then one of the things we have to do is wait to be able to see that, uh, to, to console our neighbor, to hear their suffering and join in it. And it's at that place, sacramentally, that God is present working life out of death. Um, but we become too frantic. And so much of our action, um, whether it's on the right or the left, is a kind of hyperactivity that never really sees our neighbor. We either see those who are on our side ideologically or not, or we see potential kind of religious consumer here. And we lose the call that the church is the community that ministers to the world by joining the world, putting down our hands, and being with those in the world as we pray and yearn for God to bring life out of death. I mean, that sounds so insanely counterintuitive. And I can only agree with you because I've served as chaplain and know like how counterintuitive chaplaincy is. Um, so let me ask this. I know we're running out of time here. Um, I think, you know, someone who, I'll speak for myself, someone who serves squarely rooted within the mainline context. And I think there's a sense, at least that I see, where folks, um, this is maybe too, this is maybe too critical. I I think, and I'm curious your perspective on this. Like, it seems like Mm -hmm. folks would be just as content with church being a nonprofit. Um, and that's the way we operate, you know, as if like, Hey, like the worship, whatever, but if we're feeding people and meeting needs, like again, all important stuff here, um, that like, like we would be better served and our world would be better served or communities would be better served if, if we weren't even a church so much as just a nonprofit, like, Mm -hmm. like, am I wrong? And, like that assessment and like, that's kind of how I'm reading you, reading it through the lens of you. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I guess I would, I would frame it like almost positively in the sense that if this isn't about God in the anticipation that God can act and move, then we should just allow nonprofits to do all this. Yeah. And, and, and what I mean is that like, in some sense, nonprofits do better. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to undersell. I think the church does a lot. I think you can see empirically, in it, both historically and just like in, in, in the last few, you know, just presently, right. that the church right. does a lot of good for its, um, its, its neighborhoods, its communities, often more than gets, than gets broadcast. What usually gets or narrow cast right. on social media or something right. is all the kind of crazy, weird, backward stuff that happens. But there's a lot of really good, I mean, no one feeds more people in America than the church does. You know, like there is, that is legitimately at play, but it it becomes interesting in thinking like what justifies that action. And in some sense, we're, we're a bit ashamed that we do this because we think some kind of theological commitment, because we think that God is moving, Mm -hmm. because we think when we feed our neighbor, we're feeding Jesus Christ, because we're called um, to participate in death to bring life out of it. Um, You know what I mean? Like, we we almost don't like that part. Yeah. Um, And and at that sense, then we are just a kind of non-profit. And I guess my point is, then, if, if, if there isn't a living God who's moving, then we should just 
trans we should just yeah. transition all into nonprofits and and that could be good for society in some ways i'm not under underplaying that but if there's something deeper here i mean if it even means to be a human being that we are surely selves but we are also soul like there's a sense of soul and spirit within this then it isn't going to be enough just to get our actions right just to just to make our busyness be productive there's going to be a need or we're going to run up against a certain place where our action hits impossibility. And I think, you know, maybe this is a good way to end in some senses that what I worry about is what a nonprofit cannot do mm-hmm. is it cannot walk the long road of life with people. And some people will hate that I say this, but per- help people prepare to die. Yeah. And to die with a certain vision. And what a pastor does that a nonprofit person doesn't do is reminds people that their actions do have limits and that their limit reflects the fact that you are a creature and creatures will die and that there is a deep sense of spirit that yearns for answers or communion or connection or visions of something bigger up against our little deaths and our big deaths and that we need a story we need a commitment to a redemption inside of those realities and a a nonprofit cannot do that. A nonprofit cannot necessarily, and again, you know, there's obviously exceptions to this rule, but it, it cannot give a deep, rich narrative shape to even when we feed people, Jesus Christ is there, mm. like in Matthew. Yeah. And death is overcome, even at least as a witness, and um limit in spirit, um, birth a new possibility like that we we need that narrative as human beings and and part of what our kind of secular age is doing is we're trying to create a society and we're only 500 years into this and we don't it's not looking all that great right now but we have to have a long view here we're trying to create a society where god doesn't need to be at the center yeah you know like where where we don't need this narrative at play um and I can see that your dog and your your background, and that just makes me deeply happy. Yeah, let's wrap this up because my kids are uh, the wife and kids are waiting patiently in the garage here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I have a dog too, who's probably behind that door behind me, waiting for for her walk. So. Um, so, last question here. I'll skip all the normal questions I've already asked you. It's like, I mean, what do you hope? I mean, what do you what do you hope for the future of? American church. I don't know. Maybe that's too broad. Your denomination, yeah, church in your in your context. What do you hope? Yeah, what I ultimately hope for us is that uh one of the that one that we would stop catastrophizing too much. Mm. I think we catastrophize. I think at both the lay level as well as the pastoral level, I think pastors feel the burden that if you don't get your crap together, right. The church is going to yep. die. Your church is going to die. Your denomination is going to die. Maybe Christianity in America is going to die. And I hear it even from lay people. Like if we don't get our act together, there's going to be there's going to be no church in America. And I think the first thing I want to remind us is that the church is God's responsibility, and it is not going anywhere. And your actions cannot save it, um, but God will. And remember, this has a, it, there's a long history here, hmm. and that this is God's responsibility, not yours. Your responsibility is to be faithful to the humanity of the people before you, and faithful 
and curious about the reality that God moves in those people's lives, that God is at work in those people's lives, and to be curious about that. I want us to just have a vision that that God moves and be the kind of people who are brave enough to walk into experiences of death in anticipation that our God will show up and move to bring new life out of those. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, the book we talked about today is Churches in the Crisis Decline. Uh, Andy has a new book out, Church, The Church in an Age of Secular Mystery, can't say it, Mysticism. And it, you kind of teased that there a little bit, so I'm, now I'm excited to read the book. Um, yeah. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, they can just, uh, they can, I have a website that's just andrewroot.org and they can find me there. And, uh, or, I mean, they can Google me, find my email if they need that. And, um, yeah. Great. Well, I, thank you so much for your time. I always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.